This is a Federal News Network podcast. What exactly is Congress and the administration talking about when they throw around infrastructure spending? For what possible plans that involve agencies like the Transportation Department, we turn to someone who's been following the details closely, Bloomberg Government Congress reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. And Jack, this is such a hard bill to understand exactly what they plan to spend. Some of it's 10-year spending, some's four-year spending, uh, let alone what the tax implications are. So maybe you can sort a little bit out for what it might mean to the federal bureaucracy itself. Yeah, well, for what it's worth, it sounds like there's a pretty positive vibe on Capitol Hill right now in terms of actually trying to get something bipartisan, at least on the infrastructure spending, which means if you've heard about Biden's proposals that go way beyond that, the climate-related stuff, the workforce stuff, Uh, That's the kind of thing Republicans don't want to get on board with. And they've talked about transportation, infrastructure, roads, bridges, also water related infrastructure, that kind of thing, uh, as well as the broadband stuff. The big question then, though, is how do you pay for it? because Biden's tax proposals are very, very unpopular among Republicans. And when I ask Democrats about, you know, how do you expect to actually get these corporate tax rate increases through, uh, a lot of members say it's probably going to have to be in a partisan way through the reconciliation process. So they they face a fork in the road to say, are we actually going to do this in a bipartisan way and whittle the spending down to stuff that is traditional infrastructure, or are we going to try to push something democratic through and get the tax that we want. I guess a fork in the road starts with a fork in the tongue or something, maybe <laughs> not referring to one side or the other. But maybe both <laughs> they think they both think that about the other side. I think so. And so on the I guess the Republicans have offered something, golly, tiny. It's under a trillion dollars for the <laughs> yeah. direct infrastructure piece. And yeah, this is uh, 568 billion from Republicans, which, you know, even if you ask Democrats, a number of them will acknowledge that's a pretty solid number. Uh, it's it's good for investing in road uh, repaving. It's good for replacing lead pipes. It's uh, good for expanding broadband access to rural areas that don't have it. A lot of the stuff that even Democrats talk about with infrastructure, it's a pretty solid investment. The issue for Democrats, of course, is it doesn't get into, uh, as I said, the climate-related stuff. It's not as expansive, and it's not the whole economic bill, because the Democrats bill wasn't really just an infrastructure bill. It was kind of a rebuilding the economy thing. But if if they want to do a bipartisan infrastructure bill, they've had good talks so far. Shelley Moore Capito, Republican from West Virginia, has continued talking to the White House and both sides have described it as positive. They could find a middle ground on that. The big question and potentially the intractable divide is really over taxes. Sure. And so on that infrastructure spending at that $576 billion level, is it fair to say most of that money would then go through states, which tend to build the bridges and roads as opposed to the federal government? Yeah, this is, you know, when it came out from Biden, he described it as a jobs plan. But this isn't structured uh, the same way as like an FDR, you know, Tennessee Valley Authority, let's do a bunch of federal stuff and 
create federal initiatives uh, largely for the purpose of employing people. The infrastructure stuff is really more an infrastructure package than a jobs package. And it, it looks like a number of things would go through states. Of course, th these are all proposals that they've put out in bullet points and they haven't turned it into legislative language yet. So a lot of the devil is in the details. Uh, and in fact, that will probably shape the, the ideas around this uh, very significantly when they have to actually turn this into legislative language and people want to offer amendments, it's gonna be subject to a lot of change. But on your point, uh, yeah, this isn't just a federal jobs program. A lot of this goes through, is gonna go through states and, and that kind of thing to go to the contractors. We're speaking with Jack Fitzpatrick. He's Congress reporter for Bloomberg government. And yes, the devil also has a forked tongue who's got all those details. Is this pretty much all that Congress is thinking about right now? Well, it, it's kind of a two-part thing because there's the infrastructure uh, talks that are going relatively well uh, in a bipartisan sense, but then Biden split off what he's calling the American Families Plan, which is things like the extension of the child tax credit, child care, that kind of thing. The, the stuff that they, in the early days, were calling human infrastructure, that's not really infrastructure. It's another economic development kind of thing. That, I'm not sure there's a lot of bipartisan support for. A lot of the Republican response to that was pretty negative. And uh, again, the pay for is the tax increases, the big increase in the capital gains tax is an area where you're not going to get a lot of Republican support. So yeah, on infrastructure, that's where they're moving forward. They're talking about the other stuff, the families plan kind of stuff. And then of course, we'll, we'll have more news coming when Biden sends a, a full budget proposal and that kind of thing. But those two areas are really dominating Washington's attention right now. Yes, in that budget proposal, we saw the skinny outline or the you know the abbreviated outline of the budget. Is that still on track, maybe for this month, May? Uh, it, the latest we've heard is the rest of the budget, which would include the policy proposals, regulatory stuff, as well as sort of the economic projections and tax proposals, all built into something holistic is supposed to come by the end of May. The latest I've heard was that uh, John Yarmouth, the House budget chairman, said they, they were expecting it by Memorial Day. So it may take a, a little while longer to get all the details. But as it pertains to funding the government and the discretionary requests, they've got a lot of work left to do. The proposal to do a really significant increase in non-defense spending and barely an increase in defense. Uh, and in fact, you could consider it a cut if you adjust for cost of living and inflation and that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, it's not going to get Republican support. So they, they haven't really wholeheartedly gotten into the debate over spending levels and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so they, they really, I think, have a, a tough road ahead in terms of appropriations, getting these bills out and doing the the regular work of funding the government. And by the way, what does this calendar look like for the month of May? Yeah, uh, the month of May, I think, is going to largely be dominated by the talks on infrastructure and the back and forth on the related tax measures. And of course, as I was just getting at, they're going to have to get started on at least the top level spending talks on regular spending. If they can't figure out the defense versus non-defense spending level, uh, pretty soon they're going to be in trouble. Because I know the appropriations chair in the House, Rosa DeLauro, has said she wants floor votes on those bills by July. And it takes a while to, to draft the bills, mark them up. Uh, so May is going to have to be a busy month 
for appropriations work if they actually want to make progress there. Are they mostly in session in May? May, they're going to be out, uh, you know, they're going to be not in Washington, at least for the first week of May. But it's a little confusing because they do committee work weeks when they're not even there because they've done so much virtual work. So I know, for example, on the appropriations end, they're going to continue doing the appropriations hearings that they need to do, even though they're not going to be holding votes. So they can make progress even when they're not entirely in session. And then finally, with the return of earmarks in some form, those horse trading discussions are also taking place or starting to. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting as it pertains to the infrastructure package, because there's a set of earmarks that they're looking for for transportation authorization. Uh, And then they're also bringing back earmarks for regular appropriations. The deadlines uh, have just recently passed for members to send in their submissions on what they want. Uh, We're going to see what actually gets picked. Uh, they kind of have to reinvent the wheel here and figure out how they want to go about picking these because it's been a decade since they've done earmarks. uh, And they haven't, you know, they've laid out some rules, but they haven't laid out the entire process for who's going to get what, other than generally saying they're going to be about evenly split between Republicans and Democrats to, to try to keep everybody relatively happy. Fun. Jack Fitzpatrick is Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. 
So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, 
despite the challenges. It's seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day as many days as I could just to sit down and talk with employees and I grew from that and 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 there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said and I told the secretary Locke you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks they're in the cafeteria not in the dining room on the blue carpet and so he started doing that so the, the point is I think for me the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. 
Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.